Welcome to Value-Based Care Insights, brought to you by Lumina Health Partners, a national healthcare consulting and leadership development firm focused on improving the strategic, financial, and operational performance of provider organizations and its leaders. On this program, we explore trends and share valuable insights on how health systems and medical groups can navigate this increasingly complex healthcare environment and shift then to transform the delivery of care. Value-Based Care Insights is hosted by Daniel Moreno, Managing Partner of Lumina Health Partners. With over three decades of experience, Daniel specializes in helping organizations shape their strategic initiatives in areas of population health, clinical integration, physician alignment, information technology, and board retreats. For additional insights, visit our website, luminahp.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Dan, over to you. Welcome to Value-Based Care Insights. I'm your host, Daniel Marino. This is the second of three episodes where we are talking about risk-based contracting. As we all know, risk is becoming even a larger part of a lot of our contracts, especially as we move from fee-for-service to fee-for-value. Um, risk-based contracts, especially in the Medicare Advantage world, is, is really gaining steam. Um, we talked about that on the last episode, and I, I felt it was important to rerun the episode that we did last October, where we invited my colleague Cliff Frank to come in and, and talk about the basics of risk-based contracts. Well, I, I have Cliff with us again today, and we're going to spend a little time talking about what has changed. And I'll tell you, in the contracting world, even though that that episode ran last October, it seems like an eternity between now and then, given how much has changed in the risk-based contracting world with the information that has come down from CMS and so forth. For instance, you know, there's been a lot of pushback on the RAF scores, on the risk modeling. Um, there was some new announcements that had occurred around the potential health equity indicators that will be part of Medicare Advantage down the road, all of which are really impacting providers. And, and not only our ability to manage according to these contracts or be successful and optimize um, our revenue within the contract, but in particular, what we need our physicians, our providers to do to move from a retrospective point of care to more of a prospective care model. So to help us kind of talk through this today, Cliff, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be here. So Cliff, Cliff help us make sense of this. Um, what are you seeing in terms of some of these changes? There's been a lot going on just in, in the last month, month and a half or so. Well, CMS has been taking a lot of heat from Congress and from industry observers that they kind of gave away the, the, the store for the last 10 years. So on risk on basically uncapped risk adjustment. Now they signaled with um with some of the ACO products, a willingness to change that in that they capped the risk score gain you could get in, in MSSP ACOs at 3% over multiple years, uh, whereas it's uncapped 
in Medicare Advantage until 2024. Right. With the new with the new regs, they're signaling that that game is going to end in several ways. First, they're making it harder to actually get risk adjustment. A lot of di- they went from ICD nine to ICD ten or ten to eleven. I forget which. But anyway, they killed a lot of diagnoses that adjust. There were like 2,000 diagnoses right, that lot, adjusted, right. particularly in diabetes. Those are gone. They don't, they don't get you more risk points. Then the second thing they did was they said, oh, we're going to really start auditing um, a lot more closely. And, it's, it's not, it, and, and the risk scores have to come in through claims, not through some magical home visit that that the plan has has orchestrated. So they're really kind of making all that much more difficult. At the same time, uh, CMS has signaled a a rapidly growing interest in measuring and enticing health plans to tackle health equity. And, And so as if you kind of think of it as a as a kind of a teeter totter, um, as as the health equity side goes up, the risk score side goes down in terms of dollars. So the dollars will still be there, but they'll be there for different reasons. Right. In two years. Right. So there's really you know two two key things that I've seen. I think it's it's thinking about how we're positioning ourselves for risk within risk managing risk, identifying risk within the contracts, you know, that that's a big one. And then the health equity piece and, and where that comes into play. Let's start with the risk piece, because I have a few questions here that I'm kind of working through in my mind. So, I, you know, I'm kind of thinking that there's two pieces to this, right? You know, we spent a lot of time as providers talking about the fact that we need to capture HCCs and that HCCs are supporting the RAF scores. And the RAF scores give us a better idea on the the sickness, if you will, of our population, of which then dollars are tied to that. You know, and, and, and a lot of providers have spent a lot of time educating their, their, their physicians and monitoring it and, and almost going back and recalculating that. Was that in particular, was it wrong? I mean, did we overstate it? Oh, not at all. So much focus no, on all, this. That's all good stuff for lots of different reasons. Um, the first is that uh, providers like to compare themselves against each other. You're right. Yes. And, and so if my per member per month spend is 20% higher than you, of course, the first thing I'm, you know, I'm going to whine about it. Well, my patients are sicker. Yeah, so my population's sicker. Right. So so the RAF scores actually level that that debate, which then moves us to the next level, which is, what are you doing that I'm not doing? What are you not doing that I'm doing? Let's have a conversation about clinical pat- use utilization pattern. So you can't have that without some sort of severity adjustment, risk adjustment, population standardization. So regardless of what else happens inside CMS in the deal between the payer and the provider, it's really useful information. Then further to have some indicator as to what's changing in your in a particular patient. Their risk score just jumped 30%. Well, there's an indicator for some case management intervention, some care support, 
some further love and attention from the doctor. Uh, it could be, you know, referral to a specialist. It could be any number of things. But it's an early indicator. It can be an early indicator of a problem that's coming hard and fast at the member and at at the at the provider network. So right. So all those things still have plenty of value, regardless of what else happens. And then the third is remember, risk scores can go down. So sure. CMS is, isn't saying. Oh, we'll insulate you from the down as much as we cap you on the up. You know, if if you if you fall asleep on risk scores and suddenly you drop two or three points, guess what? You're and you've got a percent of premium deal. Your revenue just went down. <laughs> you just so, went down. Yeah. So the performance model still has to be there, right? It still has to be sound. You still have to manage that population around cost of care, around yes. utilization. Yes. And then you have to accurately identify the risk. I think the key to it, though, is that if the risk is going up, if the cost of care is going up, and, and even you know if it's based on overutilization, as you mentioned, some interventions around care, care um, management has to come into play and you have to show that you're taking some responsibility to, to manage that. I think as we start to think about it, the model has to be clean, but we also have to prepare for some type of audit or some type of realization that this may be questioned, right? So we, we've got to get back to the data, the model, and the clinical performance to be able to show that, hey, what we're doing is, is actually the right thing to be done. I think all that is true. There's, there are plenty of places for CMS to come look at. And, and I mean, it starts with RPM, CCM, telehealth. I mean, lots of new areas that are have have been exposed already to some pretty significant frauds. So they're looking, and then um, you have their relationship with the plans, which now cut through to the provider because right. it's the provider providing the claims information. So they're going to want to see the documentation that supports that. Yeah. So if you're just submitting diagnoses with no documentation, good luck. That's going to be a problem. If you're if you're just tuning in, I'm Daniel Marino, and you're listening to Value Based Care Insights. I'm having a great discussion with Cliff Frank. We're talking about uh, value based contracts and and really tying that to risk and and really what's changed over the the last couple of months. So, Cliff, and a, another question: um, How are the payers responding to this? Obviously. There's been a lot of lobbying efforts to Congress to to change this. You know, we, we we've read about this. CMS has certainly has responded. How are the payers? How are you seeing the payers responding to the providers? Well, there is a an emerging sense of interdependency that did not so much exist before. Providers in 2022 were kind of a necessary evil. Mm -hmm. But now with the data being kind of wholly resting on what providers do and the and therefore the coding and the uh, interventions happening at the physician level, if things don't get better, for the member, right? They can lose. They can pretty pretty easily lose the member. I well, mean, one of the things that's yeah. really different 
is that the old HMO, Medicare HMO model of a narrow network focused on a system of care, those days, like Kaiser, those days are really hard. Those are hard sales now. Right. Most of the products selling are PPO, go anywhere you want, um, as long as it's in, in network and very broad networks. And so, and for zero premium. Yeah. So it's, it's really um, much more member centric and, and the providers feel that because they're really not in a position to say no, like there's no referral authorization. It's more like they can suggest maybe this orthopod or maybe that facility. But um, if the member wants to go to someplace else, just saw a nice billboard on the freeway, you know, they're going and they may not even tell the primary. Yeah. So that's a, that's a different world. And, and frankly, the primaries are, are not up to speed about that. Right. Well, you know, I was having a command and control world and it's not. I had a conversation just a couple of weeks ago with um, one of the, the vice presidents of managed care for this large health system. And, you know, he felt like he was in a really difficult position, vulnerable, if you will, because, you know, they've um, to his, you know, he, he fully admitted they've not done a good job of creating their models that are prospective. They're, they're mostly retrospective, right? So they're look backs in terms of what had happened and what are some of the trends that have occurred. And, you know, then they're kind of, they're trying to apply that to their contract and particularly in, in some of the risk-based contracts. And they, you know, they're at risk for they percent of premium for some of their contracts. So he feels extremely vulnerable. And just over the last month and a half, their end of their performance year was a calendar year. Um, the payers came to him and said, here's what your model looks like, right? We're seeing that you overshot your risk levels. We're seeing that, you know, your utilization is higher than what, you know, you're reporting that it is. And, and frankly, he admitted he didn't have a good model to begin with. Um, and they're not making the money that they thought they were going to. And to make matters worse, the finance people booked some of this ahead of time. Oh, <laughs> which, which kind of made it a bigger, bigger challenge because, you know, as they were running some of their retrospective models on a quarter by quarter basis, they were playing off the model, right? So it it just, it goes back to show that the data and really moving to a prospective model of risk, of care, of these care plans um, is going to be critical to the success going forward. Well, you just bring up something really interesting that's super important for providers who are in risk deals. You got to learn how to spell IBNR. (laughs) Incurred but not reported claims liability and prospective models will help you do that. Retrospective models will leave you blind. Yep, that's what I'm seeing. A 30% swing. Yeah. And, And you booked it one way and suddenly you come back and get whacked. Yeah. So, I mean, that can be a real career limiting move for for a CFO or for a for a an IDN leader. Yeah. Um, well, it's and, and really hard. The the point, the question that he had is, you know, where's the truth? Right. It's it's clearly somewhere in between because he doesn't believe he doesn't quite believe where the payers are coming in at, and and certainly he thinks maybe his model was was off. So 
clearly it was in between. So there, you know, again, I, I agree with you. And that's what was my response too. You have to move to a prospective model. It gives you much more, a greater ability to begin to understand what's happening and to influence it, I think is really key. Well, the other thing is that the payers in this new world are loath to believe anybody else's data. Well, that is true. Yep, so, that is true. So it almost doesn't matter what our clients think is reality. What is reality to the payer is your what they think your risk scores are, what they think your expenses are, what they think your IBNR is, and all the rest of it. So in a sense, the real effort is you have to, and this is hard, you have to get inside their data better than they do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in our next episode, we're going to spend some time talking about that. That's the third episode in the series, because I really feel like if providers are going to be successful, they have to begin to dive into their, their numbers, their data, their models, and create a model that's going to be prospective. One, to give them a better idea of what their performance is, but also, you know, in the event that there's an audit, you just have a you have a lot more capability to be able to respond to around that audit than you do if it's retrospective. Yep. Um, so we're going to spend some time talking about that. One one thing that um, one thing that came came to mind, Cliff, as you were talking about this, is um, you know a lot of these models, a lot of the activities, of course, are, are still wrapped around the primaries. How is this affecting the specialists? Are, are you seeing? Um, any of the the, the risk contracts um, impacting the specialists different? Are there things that you know the cardiovascular group um, or cardiology or or some of these other you know GI other these other interventional specialty practices? Um, anything that they need to do? Or any impacts that you're seeing there? Uh, yes, um, a lot. Um, but it starts like three premises. First of all, we don't have enough specialists. I mean, oh, we already true. know that we don't have enough primaries, but we've been using nurse practitioners and other urgent cares to kind of plug the gap. When it comes time to go see a specialist, it can take four to six months to get a new patient in. I know, so, and that's outrageous. So medical specialists, uh, neuro, um, endocrine, uh, cardiology, unless, unless they're you know, gasping for breath, you know, it's going to be a problem. Then when they see them, they may, you know, do a lot, may do a little. Uh, they don't really care what the primary wants done. They're just going to do what they want. Yeah. And if you don't like it as a primary, fine, send them someplace else. I got 40 more in the hall waiting right. to come see me. So the old style of, you know, North American medical management where you have a few specialists and a big net of primaries feeding those specialists, and that's all they did. I don't think that model works anymore. No, I just I don't agree. think it's very prevalent, unless you're Kaiser and you employ them. Right. But short of that, the power dynamic has really flipped. And as a result, oh, and remember, a lot of these specialists are part of private equity deals that are strictly churn and burn. Well, they are. And the integration has to be better. I'll, I'll tell you, it has to be better. Um, and it has to be, you know, we're, we keep talking about moving to a prospective risk model that has to guide 
some of the, the referral activity, integration with the specialists, you know, even solving some of these access issues, because that's going to come into play, certainly, as you start to, to think about what the financial performance is going to look like for the network as a whole. And frankly, the payers could care less about, you know, they care from a quality standpoint, I guess, but they don't really care that it takes you 30 days to get into see a specialist. What they really care about is what the cost implications are. Well, so in Medicare, some of that is diminished because, you know, the Medicare fee schedule is the Medicare fee schedule. So sure. if you go to the academic medical center or you go to somewhere Doesn't down matter. the street, okay, you may have, you know, um, what do you call that? Uh, the uh, clinic charges, you know, right. uh, the, the provider-based payment problem, yeah, the right. but that gets charged back to your expense. But absent that, um, the fees are pretty much similar. So then it gets to use pattern, access, and patient initiation. Remember, about half the patient visits to a specialist are patient initiated, not referred by primary care doc. Yeah. These are people who just wake up, they got a sore back, they're going to the orthopod. Away right. they go. So, you know, how the heck do you control that kind of utilization if you're the primary care doc? Well, absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, it really is care management. It's that integration piece that has to, has well, to come into play. you can't say no. So it's a right. process. I mean, you can't, you can, but you can't make it stick, particularly if the patient's just bypassing you, which is why the care support teams, early intervention, um, and, and this kind of, right. I don't, don't want to call it disease management because that's not really what it is, but no, there's some connectedness management. to that patient outside of the, the, the doctor's treatment room that keeps that patient coming back again and again and, and having telephone contact and otherwise informa information seeking so that that relationship can remain vibrant and a curative. Right. That doesn't happen if it's transactional. No, and if we're paying true. our primary care docs to be transactional, guess what? We get transactions, we don't get managed right. care. No, it needs to be managed, it needs to be coordinated. Um, Cliff, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to get your opinion on, on where some of these contract activities are going, um, particularly around what CMS announced a couple, maybe a, a month or so ago month and a half, when they said, hey, we're going to start including health equity indicators as, as part of the contracts. Real quick, um, how is that coming into play? I mean, health equity, social determinants, everybody talks about it. It's a big driver of, of chronic diseases and so on and so forth. We all get that. But how, are we, how is this, this going to be measured? Any insight you can provide? Yes. Um, CDC has come out with a social vulnerability index. CMS has published about 50 measures of health equity from you know, income and transportation barriers and other, other kinds of, of, of things that are, that are uh, potential uh, uh, interference with, with access to care. Um, getting good baseline data is important. The hard part, and, and, and there are companies out there that have big data that can, can do that. Here's the hard part. Given that you know that, what's the use case for doing something about it? Well, so absolutely. I'll give, I'll give you a, a, an example. Real life. Last year, big heat wave coming to Philadelphia, 115 degrees. 
We need to know in our ACO, we need to know who's living alone in second story building or higher with no air conditioning who has COPD or asthma because they're going to die. Right. <laughs> we need to get, and, and we need to get them some fans. Right. We so those types of indicators have to be included in the care plan, right? And then as you're prospectively managing that, incorporating that in. So I- It takes I, a whole different database. It takes a whole different worldview. And it takes, and that's not something that can come right from the primary care office. Really a care management organization, be it a plan or be it an IPA or an ACO central administration, somebody's got to take that view and say, you know what? We need to understand not just the patients, but the whole population and, and apply these various use cases. Right. Now, here's the problem. Doctors think from the specific to the general. Population health people think from the general to the specific. So yep. if you just plop a bunch of stats on the table, the doctor's going to look at that and say, what the hell do I do with this? Right. What does so, it mean? So really, I think the better way to do it is to take a bunch of use cases like the like the COPD patients in a heat wave and work it backwards to some sort of generalized, yeah. this is the kind of information we need. That yeah. leap has not been made in the industry. It's yeah. wide open. That's a good point, almost to create pathways around what some of those health equity issues are. Well, Cliff, um, you know, we're, we're at the end of the show. I want to thank you. Um, you know, I, I think talking about health equity, this, uh, I, I'd love to have you back and dive into it a little bit further. Maybe we can sure. even get some data folks in here that have had some experience with uh, health equity and social determinant indicators. I think that would be a great discussion. But thanks, Cliff, for coming on. I, as usual, enjoy it, my friend. Time went fast. It certainly did. And I want to thank our audience for listening today. Until our next insight, I'm Daniel Marino bringing you 30 minutes of value to your day. Take care. Are you at a crossroad with value-based care? Do you need to chart a future strategy or improve your organization's performance? Visit us at LuminaHP.com to learn more about our professional advisory services and leadership development programs. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. To connect with Daniel Marino or for more information about the show, visit our website or healthcarenowradio.com. Join this conversation using our hashtag BBC Insights. We are Lumina Health Partners. Thank you for joining us today. Until the next value-based care insight, stay well.